podcast for curious minds. And here's your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, Damien Keller, binaural production engineer author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything that you need there. And now, without any further ado, our guest is Jared Murphy. What's up, Jared? Hey, everything's good. I, I'm. It's awesome to be on. I wanted to know if you can hear that uh, audio. I wonder if it's on my end. You sound uh, all scratchy. I do. Yep. Yep. Hmm. It sounds like. I hope that's just at my end. Are you hearing it? No, I don't hear it. Okay, I'm just gonna ignore it, everyone. So sorry, but oh. uh, nobody wants to hear uh, scratchy, weird audio. No. So it must. It must just be my speaker. I don't know. You're not the first person though to say that to me. Oh, it just it didn't it didn't it wasn't like that when we were chatting before we started recording. And the minute you started talking after the audio, it it's it's it sounds like you're uh I don't know, talking through a cheesecloth into a tin can that's then echoing and it's super staticky. Wow. Oh, nope, oh, now it's gone. Try it's again. Gone? So how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Oh my gosh. Uh, what did you do? It's totally different. It's gone. It's gone? Yep. Uh, it must be the internet connection. Okay, dokie. Sorry, folks. Uh, who loves to hear about audio as we start our show? Um, People love probably it. cut that out. <laughs> so let's just jump into it, man. Yeah. Do, did, do you want to like, did you, you want to start or no? Did you find a Kincaid cave? cave? Uh, negative. We did not. But um, um, did you want to restart or no? No, I'm not restarting. All right. Sorry, folks. Um, so, no, uh, we um, used a very long selfie stick, and it had 6K ability, and we um, did – we shot the entire area that the mile markers indicate where in Marble Canyon the Kincaid Cave is supposed to be. We were fortunate enough to have someone who is Navajo, and they guided us out there and um they're of and in the nation and it was very interesting no one i think on earth has taken i think you know people wait a long time for permits to get into the canyon however i have learned there are a lot of things i've learned one is um and and there is more to tell you about caves and stuff like that so i'm not digressing everybody's hold on but the uh What's interesting was the uh, kayakers we kept seeing, I really thought it was more money, but it turns out that for 130-ish dollars, there's a lot of outfitters. You can hop in a kayak and take a lot of great photos from the canyon floor 
in the river for about uh, five hours. You can go on a canyon ad adventure. You will go around Horseshoe Bend, which is that very famous stop in Page. Well, it's within the city limits, but it's right on the edge. It's a uh, that's a ten dollar, by the way, park your car overlook, and you can uh, get in a kayak further past page. So this is North Arizona, and you can definitely take some very detailed photos of the canyon from the ground up. I've learned a lot about paleoanthropologists that it's amazing, Gary, since you and I started, and we're going to actually do this. I, I'm telling you, I looked at a zillion articles and I know you looked at stuff. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of research and nothing. It's bizarre. The clarity that comes through after you take the step and do the trip. Uh, suddenly an article came up about uh, a, a professor, a doctor, uh, Mead, who was interviewed by the Arizona Gazette. This man is in charge of Carlsbad, but also had started going into caves in the Grand Canyon in 1969. And they have hypothetically explored 120 of 270 miles of the Grand Canyon potential caves uh, lineally. Okay, so not like every cave in order. They haven't numbered them. Mm -hmm. There's no, they, they keep a lot of it under wraps. There was some vandalism in the seventies and they've tried to keep it academically. They're not just trying to hoard it. They're trying to, uh, somebody got into one of the caves where there was a lot of basically a natural history museum worth of organic uh, mummified and remains that would have been great to analyze and guano and, and, and the cave burned for a really long time. Somebody lit a fire in there and it ended up burning a lot of what was in there and it destroyed all the info. So they've tried to keep the caves under wraps. However, I'm there in Tuba at the Navajo Nation at this really great place. Tuba City is very small, it's Navajo, but I was sitting there and I'm reading this article and it's like, yeah, there's 150 miles of unexplored potential area of caves. Uh, we've only gotten through the first 120 miles of the canyon uh, frequently the caves, you have to hike inland, you know, the, the canyons wide. Mm -hmm. So when people look at it, it is really difficult for people to see that the, the mind's eye, you're like, Oh, you know, the, the canyon's not that, I mean, you could see the other side. It, it must be, you know, like a quarter mile or half a mile. It's not, um, frequently you're looking across up to a mile just to the other side and straight down. If you even if you dared to look over an edge, which is very, very precarious, don't do it. I don't recommend it. But <laughs> man, dude, straight down, we were standing where the Kincaid Cave is. The height is approximately 3,500 plus feet straight down. So we have exclusive photos. They'll be on Not Aliens uh, member area. I'll get you some of them too. And, you know, we'll have them on everything imaginable, wherever you want to put them. But Looking at an angle at some of these kayakers and boating groups that were, and, and what's interesting is, again, I uh, finding stuff about this mile marker and, and where it is within the, there's a, a set of rapids that are very near this point. Uh, they're, they're spelled K-W-A-G-U-N-T, and I am not even going to try to pronounce it because it doesn't sound right. I'm not going there. But uh, Qua... G U N T. Quat? Um, quag. What? Quagunt. <laughs> I'm going to say quagunt. Rapids. And so, if you, if for everyone listening, if you want to uh, get on a map, 
and be within a mile of where the GE Kincaid cave is, allegedly, uh, based on the descriptions in the uh, Gazette article. There are two. Neither of them were on April Fool's. So uh, they were, th th these are the, of the two articles that explain that GE Kincaid was part of a research team that uh, found what may have been Oriental or uh, Egyptian, um, uh, Asian, Asiatic mummies, mm -hmm. and that all of this was taken out by a team from the Smithsonian. That you know, all that info, uh, all we have is this, these two articles, and then everyone's been chatting about it, but no one's gone back. So the first people to do it were, was myself and Rex from uh, Leak Project, and uh, with our guide Chandel, uh, cool guy, super cool. Um, did a couple tours in Iraq. Uh, he's a vet. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, he 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 would be a fun person for us to talk to. But yeah, so here we are at the at that for everyone listening. There is all this talk about you know where's where's the cave you know where's the what's going on and what's really interesting is we get our really long selfie stick out with six K footage abilities and we had a okay so we also had a in our in our repertoire of of stuff we had the uh nikon uh i think it's a p1000 it has a telephoto lens that uh we were looking across the canyon uh again and again straight down 3500 feet where we're at you couldn't even see it we're looking at angles so we're looking at one mile or closer to a mile to see some of these boats on the river in fact just past the rapids and directly where the Kincaid cave is supposed to be. There's a large uh, rafting uh, stop where they set up a um, it's a space that they stop at for a break. Mm -hmm. And so that's right there past the rapids. And at the same time um, we're looking exactly where the cave is supposed to be. Now, one could argue that for all of you thinking it could be hidden, well, we would need a thermal drone. Thermal drones are about $10,000 plus eight grand of it apparently is the thermal part. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can get that, then we would be, um, you know, we would be set because we would be looking at the heat differentials at night. We'd be able to tell even if there was a cave opening that had been hidden or camouflaged, we would see the thermal difference and we would know if the cave was there. But the description of the cave based on the article is that it is, although hidden from sight from uh, Kincaid on the river, uh, it is a significant thing for anyone listening. When he said uh, in the article, well, you know, it's about 2000 feet up. It is not easy to get to. I don't recommend it. Okay. Uh, men were hardy back then. Women were hardy back then. Uh, if you had the right kinds of redundant ropes, could you have kind of pickaxed and um, uh, created a uh, a rope that would catch you if you fell and pounded into the dirt and the rubble and make your way up a very steep intermediate to advanced climbing hill? Uh, not a climbing route, but just a, a hill of rubble, of debris. And that's what he's essentially saying he did. He was, as we discuss the facts and also speculate Kincaid said he scrambled his way up to a stained area that caught his eye 
to enter a canyon cave that you couldn't actually see from where he was height, uh, where he was, uh, you know, canoeing by himself, by the way, no backup climber, no nothing. And then he uh, gets there and, you know, he just felt, you know, he could kind of see it. He said from a distance and makes his way up there. And voila finds uh, all these mummies, a Buddha statue, goes on further to discuss, um, you know, as we've already covered, uh, a city, uh, an entrance to a city. Well, so we're not talking a small cave opening. So getting back to the thermal droning, we're not talking about a small entrance. And even though I've done the research on the canyon, something else that became very apparent was the number of uh, the, the, the United States in the 1950s went bananas uh, grabbing uranium out of the canyon. So Arizona in general is a, a very mineral rich area. And the problem with the, well, uranium is that of course it's very toxic. And apparently there's even $500 million set aside that has not been used to clean up some of these mines. And there are not just a couple, there is an uncountable number of legit mines that the United States uh, mined for uranium uh, yes, there was also 200 years of prospectors. Um, there's a lot of great minerals in Arizona in general. So there are people who during the gold rush, the original one that everyone's running off to Nevada City in California, where the gold rush started, you know, the 49ers, there are people who veered off and said, well, there's got to be something in the Grand Canyon. So the confusing part about looking for any ruin and for those speculating is they could have collapsed uh, an entrance because they weakened it because they maybe dug further in than they were supposed to, or maybe somebody thought they did find something and they hid the cave, or maybe there are just other caves that are being mistaken for the Kincaid cave. But in reality, they were uh, U S government uh, sanctioned uh, uranium mines. And a lot of them, you know, they're crevasses, they're, they're mines that are straight down and, uh, ironically, I never saw any of this info, not really, not, not, I, I feel like the, the fog of this lifted after I chose to go out. And what's very interesting to me is that the, uh, the information that we were finding it, it, it was like coming to us every morning. I would get up in tuba. I would start with coffee and I'd start looking and like, boom, here's this paleoanthropologist from Carlsbad. Uh, uh, Mr. Mead being interviewed about uh, starting and caving and exploring and doing the anthropological work in the in 1969 and how he's like, well, you know, there's at least 150 miles and we don't even know how many caves are there. And we really, I mean, one of the caves that we found is 40 miles long. And the article for the Arizona was so short, you know, it's not like our shows where we can just talk as long as we right. want. I mean, like, dude, how much crap is in a 40 mile long cave? It's not even like a straight cave, like, <laughs> uh, you know, and I get it. Some of it's aquifer, some of it's just natural river carve out, but, or well, what's in a 40 mile long cave? How that, what, that's very interesting, isn't it? It would take me a week just to walk that. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, <laughs> especially if you're, if you're stopping for snacks. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, so we uh, um, so we got into it, and I'm a, 
I'm super happy about it uh, because no one's done it. You know, we we talked yeah. about it now months ago, <laughs> but no one's bothered to go. And so from what we can see, and I wanted to digress a little bit about the oh, the oddities of just, uh, there, there was definitely a point where we were followed by, um, there were three government types that actually were watching us. Really? Yes, I will tell you about that in a minute. But I, I wanted to digress on the mines because, you know, you expect when you go online, and this is just a reminder to everyone. One, my reminder is screenshot everything you see. If you find something once and you know it's interesting, screenshot it, uh, get it downloaded. Um, because it's amazing how many times things disappear. And I've, I've said that since <laughs> my early days looking at Gobekli Tepe and the organic information disappearing. And then the other thing is, um, you know, the again, the cave systems, uh, like how did this article just timely come out? I mean, again, it's just timing, but a brand new article about Mead's work, like I didn't know that there was a head you know, someone who is in charge of Carlsbad, we should try to interview Mead. Um, yeah. We should try to get him on the show. Yeah. If, Do you have a contact for him? Uh, I will get you the article. And I, yeah, he's the, uh, he's semi-retiring, but mm-hmm. the man in, knows a lot about the cave systems within the canyon because he's been there. And again, they're trying to keep it low key. Uh-huh. But at the same time, he said, it's harder and harder to get permits but there's 150 miles of unexplored stuff. I mean, it's crazy. 150 miles. And, 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 and of the 120 ish that they've looked at, that doesn't mean they found everything. That doesn't mean they use thermal drones. It is hard knocks, badass. You're, you're in the Canyon. As I was describing the distances you're looking at, we're using a telephoto lens. We might be looking two, three miles away. It might be over two miles. I mean, what we were zooming in on with that telephoto lens was insane. The details that you could see, you could practically see someone's writing on a wall that, you know, maybe somebody wrote just larger than normal handwriting with a black Sharpie. You could see it with this Nikon. It was, it was bananas. And we, we are looking at cave systems that from the 1960s on, it's not like there is a massive amount of collegiate input or resources when you think of uh, what could have been used for college sports. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm making a vast broad stroke here at simply all the reasons, simple, simple why, uh, you know, there's not as much research as we think, yet there are priorities like uranium is a priority for our government. And we, we, were, we were not there to interfere with anything that the government's doing. That's not our thing. Our thing was to find this cave. And so here we are uh, looking. And it, it, it was just nuts because we're seeing in graphic detail in 6K footage that there's no cave. And I'm telling you, when we stood there at the edge of that canyon, right at the correct mile mark, I mean, we were right there. And you're looking around. Uh, you could see caves. I was, by the way, I will give myself the sticker. If anyone could spot a bush across the canyon and call it a cave, it was me. My discernment ability to identify a cave that in reality was a series of very large bushes. But from the distances we were looking, 
I would have sworn all up and down or taken a photo with my Galaxy. And ironically, also, I will say this, my Galaxy S Note 9, holy crap, could that thing zoom in. I zoomed in on one of the campsites when we went to a different uh, bend in the river. Uh, we continued to explore beyond the Kincaid because, again, what if everybody was wrong? So, like, what? Well, let's look at other areas. But uh, my zoom ability on my Samsung was pretty significant. But we had all this other equipment. I had a Sony uh, camera also, and we had the Nikon. Uh, so we had, and then binocular, there was, man, we had a lot of equipment and thank God Rex had his off-road Jeep with the high, low and the four wheel and the, uh, independent, uh, displacing, uh, I mean, we, 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 we were actually doing some beginner to intermediate. Definitely. Uh, if you want a reason to buy a real Jeep, uh, we were doing it because it was an hour and a half, man. It was an hour and a half from to a gas station. I had and we, next time I have the Jeep, so we're good. Oh, not nice because, man, if you like doing that stuff, I will tell you there were plenty of times where we're like, roll up the windows, roll up the windows, roll up the windows, and we're like, we're we're we're, we're rolling the windows up as the as the mud is. Uh, I mean, the Jeep became a different color. It was gray. By the time we were done, it was uh, about the color of the brown map behind me, the world, ancient world map behind me. But the, uh, the, you know, we kept progressively moving down um, along the cliff sides, and we were looking at both sides, and no openings at all. So again, maybe they sealed off the entire entrance, but for us to know that we would need a thermal drone. So everyone listening, if they want to get a hold of Gary on everything imaginable or not aliens.com or not aliens on YouTube or um, to get, to give us an email, let us know if you would like to volunteer the use of your thermal drone, because we would like to go back and that doesn't even get us all the way. We have, um, I suppose I should move along here. So our third day of research we were at a completely different area of the canyon. We did spot a very large cave. I mean, very large. And it had uh, material in it that had been piled towards the door. And by door, I mean, it was a significant size. It was probably, uh, this space was probably 10. Um, I mean, it was it probably 20 by 18 feet was the opening. It's huge. And the Nikon work on it was pretty crazy. Um, Actually, since we're chatting, I guess I could show it to you, but I don't know if we have time. Do you want to see it? Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to let me share my screen then, I guess. It's um, more. I'll pull up the... Uh, can you hear St. Michael's in the background? Nope. You don't hear a bunch of church bells, do you? Nope. Okay. Um. So Grand Canyon, let's see here. So while I'm, while I'm looking this up, I guess I'll just say that the, um, oh, it's on the, uh, oh, sorry. It's on black. It's on. Okay. I gotta pull up the right thing here, but the, uh, as we zoomed in and as we were looking at the end of that third day, we had left my car at the Navajo bridge and I left it there and we get back and there are three guys late twenties to thirties, at least from what we can tell from a distance. And they're all on three guys are all on their cell phones and they are not talking to each other, 
but they're all looking at their phones, leaning on their car. But the minute we pull in, they're watching us and they won't stop watching us. And guys just, just the way they were acting, it wasn't normal guy behavior. You know, they weren't talking to each other and I've never seen three guys on their cell phone at the same time. You know, they weren't, you know, and if you're lost, you ask other people, it's like, they could have come over and said, Hey, do you guys know where fill in the blank is? Mm -hmm. You know, they could have done that, but they didn't. And so we have a, you know, it's just, it was very odd the way they were doing it. And then when we got in our car, so I loaded all my gear back up. And when I loaded my gear up, uh, Rex acted like he was going to pull out of the dry or out of this small parking lot. And when, um, when, well, when we did that, um, suddenly they got in their cars too. And they, uh, they went to leave. They were going to follow, you know, Rex was in front and it was my car. They were going to follow us out. Well, Rex did a loop through the parking lot again. They paused. I pulled over and it forced them to have to actually leave without actually following us out. But the, those guys were not going to leave. They were, they had no interest in leaving until we left. Hmm. It was, it was very weird. And it was definitely related to us being there. And, and again, it's like, you know, we're not, we don't, you can, you know how this military thing, I mean, they can yeah. listen to our phones. There's like a million different ways to listen to what we're up to. And we're just not up to anything too significant. You know, it's just, we're not there for any military reasons, but it was just, it was such an odd thing to have uh, uh, people be interested in, in what we were doing that clearly, there just didn't seem to be any reason for it, you know? So we, we definitely had that situation the third night and I'll show you the pictures of where we were, where we were at, where we took the photos. Cause we were in a public area. We were in an area that anybody can go to. Um, I wanted you to see it from a distance. I wanted you to see the distance photo, but I'm going to show you the cave up close. Um, uh, uh, here we go. And this, this is now we had been working. This is our third day of research. Can you see it? So what we're going to do is, uh, you know, this, by the way, you're looking at telephoto lens work. That's a couple miles away from where we're standing. I mean, you can see like, let me, let me go back to this photo. You, you see the little white spot. Mm -hmm. Okay. So none of these photos are us changing where we're standing. That's the same wall. And this wall is the furthest away, but this cave here. Oh yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's huge. I zoomed in. So it looks like you can reach out and touch the rock. This, this Nikon lands was crazy. Um, I, I know we're a little zoomed in here on it. Um, let me back it out. Uh, all right. So you're looking at the material that's dumping out. Uh, so at the top middle there mm -hmm. and all right. So this is where we're standing. Uh, let me, I thought that was okay. So you can see how far away that wall is, right? Yeah. As far you see all those squares. It's really easy from a distance to go, well, that looks like a rock cut ruin, mm -hmm. you know, 
it's just the way the rock sloughs, but that's what we couldn't tell. So here's the cave from a distance. Oh, yeah, it's you good there. And can you believe how close we were getting with the camera? I mean, we were right in that wall on the left. Um, how this many, is all how many feet from the bottom was this cave? Um, oh, is it, does it fit the 2,000 feet? Oh, hey, uh, uh, yes, at least. Um, to the right of my feet there, do you see the sundial in the ground? Mm -hmm. uh, we found that sundial, and it was next to a... Uh, uh, a compass that had been packed into the ground. Um, so yeah, we, we photographed the hell out of this cave because this opening is huge. I mean, I could be wrong. It could be over 20 by 20. So to give you an idea of the distance off the ground, uh, let me see if I can find that for you. I don't know if you're going to be able to follow me as if we stay on the same screen or not, you'll have to let me know. Uh, uh, let's see. Rec sent. And then let me, oh, I, I think I have a folder specifically. Um, you have to tell me if you can, can you see this? Mm-hmm. Is it a guy looking out the canyon? Yeah. Okay. So I'm so sorry. Oh, well, there's our dirty Jeep. Now, where we're standing right here, it's definitely above that 3,500-foot drop. Um. I gotta see if I can't get us to where we need to be faster. Um, well, I want you to see the edge, like you're asking, like what was the distance? And let's see here. That's Chandel. That's our Navajo guide. Uh, there's the Nikon, and that's with the lens retracted. The lens comes out doubling the length of the camera. It's quite spectacular. So this is the same location. Uh, we found a sundial. You see where his hand is. is uh, for a couple of days, folks, we were doing research and we came across a very tall, uh, you know, not the same kind of stone that's everywhere, but these this giant white limestone-y sundial. And here, uh, Chandel was looking at something else that there seemed to be an alignment with some rocks. And I looked down and I'm like, this looks like a little cleaved uh, sundial. And he goes, it is, and you can see the cleave off on the side to make a pointer. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, uh, positioning in each right there. You can see there was multiple rocks that were lined up that made it be a correct and accurate sundial. Oh, we found a dead cow um, at these <laughs> rocks. At first, uh, Rex had jumped out and said, there's no, there's no flies on these rocks. And I'm like, uh, well, flies don't generally care about rocks. And then I had to walk from the Jeep, which was on the road still. And it was so far away from this dead cow that it, you can tell here from the photo there over there, he's yelling about no flies, no flies. Well, you know, the temperatures are so first off, this entire cow had been eaten out. The interior was completely gone and it was on the way to the rim where we were going to do uh, this is a public drivable area. You just have to have a correct, this, this area is not Navajo. This is just open to the public for um, uh, off-roading. Mm -hmm. So you just have to have a Jeep like yours to go check it out. And that's the view from the other side of the Jeep. I'm standing at the Jeep when I took that photo. I am so sorry for everyone listening because we're not really getting to where it's, uh, it's <laughs> useful for you guys 
to hear what we're saying. I wanted to give Gary the distance. I wanted to show him a photo of how far out we were looking at. For some reason, as we've saved photos and for um, my share work with Leak Project, uh, we're I, unfortunately they're all convoluted and I'm not seeing the the actual cliff photo so that you could get a clear view of the distance to that cave because it is significantly okay here we go finally uh here it is uh so this is um you can see where we're standing mm -hmm. okay um i think i can zoom in uh do you see the cave mm -hmm. i'm gonna back out again so to your right wow. there where the cave it's you can high. see how high off the yeah I, I would tell you right now, as you look down the river, actually, let me zoom in again. I want to show you something down here at the river. That river wall, mm -hmm. I would guess that that's at least 400 feet. And then the sloughing part, this, this in quotes hill you're looking at, mm -hmm. is maybe four to 600 feet off the ground. Because we're still looking at cliff sides that are over 2,000 feet. So I, 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 it's ridiculous how the scale. So here's what we do know. We know from taking some measurements, the cave you're looking at, this particular large cave is about 200 feet down from the top. We know that. So that whole section prior to the slough off is about 500, 600, 700 feet, somewhere in there. And then you have the slough off section. Then you have the river section. And then way in the distance from where we were. Uh, All right. oh, sorry. So that would be uh, easy. Just uh, come down from the top. Right. Well, so the problem is, is that in our looking, it appears that there is no axe. There's no road on the other side of the canyon to that point for us to descend. So we don't know yet how to get to that point uh, yet. Fly. Um, uh, it's just there's no accessibility. There's no way to do it. Can't fly. Uh, well, I guess we can get a we can get a helicopter. I suppose. Yeah. There's that. Um. So then. Um. So yeah, the the mysterious three men watching us seemed really odd. I'm not really into that whole conspiracy thing. It's just, I mean, we are like harmless. I mean, what we're looking for isn't government related. We're not looking to. Uh, unless they are secret representatives of a of a collegiate institution that doesn't want their textbooks changed, I suppose it could have been them. But hmm. the uh, I'll go, here I'll go back to full screen. So yeah, the uh, that was our third day. So as we're doing this work, we're not seeing the cave, and we're like, wow. On one hand, it's getting harder than we thought, and then on the other hand. Um, we had met at the tuba dinosaur tracks and there are guides there, other guides. So day one, we didn't really talk to them. And then as it's turned around, I ended up there and with a really cool guide who has seen, uh, a lot of different weird things. He's 17 generations Navajo that's, and he's been in that area exactly across some of the dinosaur tracks he's seen the cigar shaped ufos land he's seen uh little people get out of them he has seen uh anasazi graves and various uh, foundational sites of the anasazi 
other dinosaur. I mean, he's a general guide in the area and he's again, 17 generations, his family has lived there and the wealth of information that got avalanched on me the last day we were there, just Murphy's law. We could have gotten all of it day one. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, there's a uh, Anasazi graves and foundations up here. There's Anasazi and mysterious caves over here. There's uh rock cut ruins that would match your description. You know, it's like he knew about the Kincaid cave. And I said, well, what about any rock cut cave? It doesn't need to be GE Kincaid's cave, right? Well, there's a lot more to say about that. So then the question is, okay, well, Mr. Mead, who we might want to get a hold of for a new interview, <laughs> well, you know, where did you guys leave off in your uh, tick box of you have to get up the canyon. Now, the rapids I was telling you about, if you're in a canoe, I mean, if you're in a boating expedition, that's about five to seven days in at a minimum to get to where the Kincaid Cave is supposed to be. So these anthropologists, paleoanthropologists, splunkers, the people working with any of these universities, they're getting permits and they're going into the canyon with a, literally pounds of supplies. And they're not uh, just going up the river and looking up a wall and the, the tremendous amount of effort it would take to either down climb or up climb the wall of the canyon that we're looking at they're traversing like lord of the rings style inland they're actually hiking miles inland up rough terrain to even locate an opening and then they have to get to the opening and there's some photos of that in the mead in mead's article i'll, I'll send that to you and then to get into those caves doesn't mean they know what they're going to, you know, find. And one of the things that they talk about is the stick people. So how about this one? Again, none of this showed up in my research and I was trying. So the reason I'm saying this to everyone is I don't understand how now it's a simple thing showing up. If we're all Mr. And Mrs. Conspiracy, why is it that all this info is showing up like an avalanche now within my, like did a veil lift? Did I like, make an effort to where I was given further random access, you know, like possibly, I think that's but, how it works. Sometimes if somebody wants us to find something, well, so now, you know, we're, you know, they have pictures of these um, people's caving, you know, up to there. And they're talking about the stick people, the stick culture, they left little stick dolls at a lot of these caves and they don't know who they were. They just know that these people lived around 3000 BC or th minimum 3000 years ago. And they, um, they left little stick dolls. Like some theoretical conclusions are that they're directional, but they were left in the caves. And it's a culture that they have no record of. They have no writings for. They're not Anasazi. They're not... They don't know who they are, but they have little stick people and the caves from what they have found are quite uh, significant uh, preservers of, you name it, dead vultures, dead sloths. That was part of the article. They found dead sloth, a sloth that died out around 11 or 12,000 years ago around the Younger Dryas. Uh, there are bones dating back to 40,000 years. Um, 
to that 11,000 year range for this sloth. But just about anything and everything has gotten into a Grand Canyon cave, even horses, and have died. And there are bones, there are feces, there are uh, animals and creatures and birds that are so well preserved, there's still tissue on things that are in these caves that are thousands of years old. And so they value the historical record that what is and could be in the, each of the caves. But there's not really a concerted effort to uh, go at them, uh, I don't know, in a more aggressive, you know, it's difficult. You know, it takes time, it takes money, but there, there just isn't a lot of well-done research on these other caves that people just aren't aware of. We're talking the majority of the Grand Canyon is unexplored. So and weird. they're making it harder and harder, but there's also this uranium cleanup. Just gives you a migraine, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm still kind of stunned by these stick people. I was super because, fascinated. Because I wonder if the people that made these stick, stick people are the ones that were kind of searching, is, is the civilization that we're looking for. Yeah, that that therein lies a, absolutely. Um, are they part of are the and, and again theoretically speaking, my my issue with dynastic peoples, all of them, uh, from the Egyptians, uh, Harappan in India to um, the megalithic cultures of Japan, which rarely get I rarely say that, to the Olmecs, Toltecs, Aztecs, Mayans, and the Anas pre Anasazi, are they all? related to these Denisovan, Neanderthal, um, mystery human races that right now, you know, there's some admission like the new dragon man and the new, uh, the new one they found in Israel. They're, they're always saying, mm -hmm. oh, it's a subhuman, you know, but okay, bigger brain capacity, you know, that's our anthropology uh, museum cartoon is that they were less intelligent, but what if there were multiple equally intelligent human races and the remnants of them are in these dynastic societies. But what if the stick people were one of the earliest survivors of a catastrophe? I mean, if they, if they kick back to that, um, you know, some people will say, well, you know, they, they, you know, they clearly came on the Bering Strait. You know, they came on the land bridge during the last ice age. Yes. You know, that's, you know they'll, they'll say that. But, <clears throat> but to your point, what the hell, what if they're, what if they were abandoned uh, or mixed with, we know the Templars, the Vikings, mm -hmm. the Phoenicians, uh, for sure, China. I mean, we're, we rarely give any light to that. China came to America way before Columbus. I mean, what are we going to do with that? You know, it's, it's, we have linguistics and cities in Central and South America that indicate, uh, not to mention an America unearthed episode with a wall. That is very similar to a wall built, wall style built in China. Oh, is that added. the one in Texas? No, no, that's Rockwall, Rockwall, Texas. But there's a, and that's in the shape of a city. But the, uh, there's actually a wall in that same episode of America on Earth. There's a wall in, in fact, uh, Olaf Phillips uh, from Paranoia Magazine. He was in that episode, and it's in, um, it's in, it's it's on the hillsides in California, and it. It indicates uh, Asiatic settlement. It indicates that the Chinese state or left an expeditionary force that got, uh, you know, that got got on to setting their 
um, lives up. Hmm. So uh, either way, there is just these stick people. What what are they? You know, it's, are they one of those uh, abandoned, um, you know, settlements? Are they mixed with other groups? Are so, they? So this is interesting because when I was talking to Frank Joseph, one of the things that we were talking, you know, about about Atlantis, his theory about Atlantis is that. There was an island of Cro-Magnums. And then these advanced people came by and interbreeded with these Cro-Mags. And the result was the Atlanteans. Where, I, I'm, I'm curious about the theory. I'd love to ask him, and I haven't read his work. But why does he think that they were a breed? I don't know. But that's just... I mean, I'm sure he has some reason... You know the antiquity. I'm 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 going to release. I haven't released anything new. I haven't put out my interviews in a while. I finally now that I'm back from this expedition, I'm going to be putting out my last ten interviews. And but I'm producing something new. I want to get it out there now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we're going to you know as far as asking these people these questions. I mean we have to. It seems like weekly now we're getting DNA sedimentary. I, I can't. The most interesting thing out right now is the silicretes of the Stonehenge. I mean, all along, alternative researchers, Brian Forrester. I mean, there's a list of people saying the weathering on these stones do not indicate the time frame that they're discussing. And now they have Gobekli Tepe to tap dance on and saying, see, Gobekli Tepe is older. And it's like, yeah, by dynastic periods. Mm-hmm. You know, you, they dragged a bunch of sars and stones and made Stonehenge, but that doesn't indicate they're the creators. And now that we know that it's a silicrete, that it's a concrete made of quartzites, um, it's basically an indestructible material. I mean, we we really, really need to back up and say, in reference to the Atlanteans, I think it's important to back up and say, okay, the the story is there were 10 cities and maybe that's the uh, safe, nice rounded number. But what if those cities really were part of a, of a survivor uh, advanced society that chose to well, try to live. In I, I don't mean to cut you off here, but one of the things that I just thought of is, okay, when we have a city, right? Yeah. What else happens? We get suburbs. Oh yeah, that's exactly right. You 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 may have people who were not part of the club, but they didn't. They were benevolent and or didn't mind them being around. So you have these other human species that were feeling safer by living closer to these cities. They maybe mm-hmm. they weren't protected, but these other survivors of whatever cataclysm they they built their communities near or within miles. Uh, that's been my thought all along that they. Uh, do that, that they would stay near something that would keep them semi, in quotes, safer from what? Yeah, is yeah. I mean, it would be beneficial for them because they could yeah. reap some of the benefits of the more advanced humans. Dude, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree with you. You're right. That, hmm. that, that's, I mean, it's, it's, I a, mean, why would their civilization be much different? Do it be the city, do it be the suburbs, and then it'll be rural area. Yeah, there's no um there's there's no way it wasn't. 
No way. There's there there's there doesn't seem to be a separation. The the frustrating part is was it Mount Toba, and then you know going to nuclear winter, survival's difficult. Was there uh, some? In, I know it sounds wordplay, but was there some sunshine during this post? super volcanic eruption 75,000 years ago and did they rebuild those uh that that civil that advanced civilization did it rebuild after toba and maybe some other you know whatever and did it turn into 10 cities was it just the 10 that were known to that region but there was really a worldwide society again because you have Tiwanaku you have other places that were all clearly existing 36 or 40,000 years ago I mean there's been a lot of chat about the you know uh, that's actually made mainstream tv shows like why tiwanaku seems to line up with star systems and things you know 18 or thirty-six thousand years ago but again does that really just indicate an abandoned city that was picked up by a lesser evolved uh contemporary group who said you know what um you know this star is really important to us so are they actually you know our modern anthropologists and archaeologists looking at that and going well you know it really lines up with this star system i, I know carl monk i know a number of um early alternative investigators between the 70s and 80s i mean their their thoughts were well you know tiwanaku lines up to this thing that was uh 32 to thirty-eight thousand years ago and it's like okay well we're definitely post younger dryas or uh post mount toba you know it's definitely half of the time frame so was the city wiped out or just abandoned and was it picked up by these like you said these other cultures did they adapt it to things that were important to them so does that does that star system alignment match with the original builders or does it match with the original survivors that took over the city yeah and then at that point it gets abandoned and and or does this you know again if you want to call them atlantean it's are is this society still continuing to build cities, you know, pre-Younger Dryas, you know, part of the, what we're talking about is, I'm saying Younger Dryas, but for everyone listening, think biblical flood. So there's all this ice and glacial-like conditions in some places. And, you know, what would it be like for society to say, you know, there's too few of us as a advanced society to control the weather or terraform the planet again, you know, do they debate, well, you know, if we build here or there, what what are we going to be looking at when, you know, maybe they were projecting out post uh, the, the biblical flood, they maybe they saw it coming and they were like, okay, well, we know this is going to happen in this epoch as we rebuild our society. You know, I don't think they would have ignored it. I think they would have planned for it and they would have built for it. Uh, but then it really just, you know, the story that we tell ourselves from what we find you know, in the last six to 12,000 years, I mean, all we have is ruins. I mean, so the question is, how long have we been ruined? You know, it's just, if they know the story of Solon and the, and the Egyptians knew the story, and if dynastic Egyptians go back as long as the priests were telling Solon, which is 36,000 years. And, and again, we're not talking, I know everyone out there listening, we, we need to be more, not, not sensitive, but we should be including megalithic Japan and Asia in this and, mm-hmm. and we don't, but because we're Western and we, here we are, 
We have Solon the Greek talking to the Egyptians saying, we have a dynastic king's list of 36,000 years. Well, that sounds about right. You're halfway past the super volcanic thing. The cities have been abandoned. There's societies, cultures, more than 150 people in a group now in a tribe. Maybe they stumbled across Tanis, the original, you know, Egyptian capital. And, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't destroyed yet. And pre, you know, pre-biblical flood. And here we are 36,000 years ago and they, they start utilizing the ruins and the hieroglyphs they see that were already on the ruins and they start kind of super starting a, a primitive society could get a lot. If it wasn't on their vernacular to write, mm-hmm. well, it sure would be when you look at a bunch of pictographs on a yeah. wall that you don't understand is writing. So yeah, you re, you rebuild. So then it's, but then, but then the biblical flood thing happens, which isn't, you know, it's just younger Dryas, another impact, another destruction. So that dynastic uh, king's list for the, you know, the Egyptians telling Solon, look, you know, we went back 36,000 years, so we're really old, but so are you. And you guys come from a really great race of people. And maybe they're referring to Tartaria. It's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, I mean, that could be a whole nother episode. Why don't we talk about Tartaria and its relationship possibly to this idea of an Atlantean culture, this advanced society that here it is pre post younger Dryas. And they're saying the society was destroyed. That's the interesting thing. They say that by 9,000 years, it was destroyed. What did your guy, I don't know, I guess I, we'd, be, we'd be revisiting it. I know we're going to re-interview him, mm-hmm. but my thought would be is that this advanced human race was working to set themselves back up pre-diluvium you know, flood. Mm-hmm. And, and they had their cities and they had their disaster contingencies and controls. I think that's why they were building at 13,000 feet in the Andes. That's why they were building at the Recot or Eye of Africa. I think they... They had some very choice locations for a reason, but then there's something else. I, I hate speculating on being diabolical, but there's something else wrong with these people. There's something else they're fighting because I just can't believe it's natural disaster. They have some really high tech um, sciences and these people, that's what makes me, if I'm worried or I'm not even worried about a natural disaster, I'm worried about why these people could not get their crap together and get rebooted. That's what worries me the most. Disease? I, I just, yes. So maybe, or, maybe again, I, I speculate constantly. Or that, maybe because there was so few of them, maybe inbreeding? I feel like they may have consciously had a grasp of their former power in reference to genetic technology, but it does occur to me that maybe the technology, maybe the issue is um, they were aware of their own technology, but they hadn't recaptured it, that the people who were experts at it were not alive. And as they rebuilt through multiple disasters, they ultimately were not able to reachieve their own either immortality or long life. There's something in the stories between the Bible and the Sumerian Kings list and the Egyptian Kings list. There's something in those stories. When you have people living thousands of years, 
you know, Methuselah, Jared, Jared is the second oldest name in the Bible. The only person who lived almost as long as Methuselah is a biblical uh, person named Jared. That's how I got named. Uh, not because of the longevity of age, but, you know, and it's always decrementing. I always find it interesting. There's also a correlation, like you said, disease, technology, cellular bio, biotechnology. Why is it that the in the Sumerian Kings list, you've got eight kings ruling for 264,000 years, give or take, depending on the Kings list, but they're 32,000 years apiece. But then, but then there's multiple disasters and they're suddenly it's, you know, 18,000 or 12,000, then 1,000 then 6,000, the years decrement, decrement, decrement down. And, you know, the Judeo-Christian religion came from Sumeria. The creation story did all of it. So how much of it is just really all Sumerian and nothing biblical, but the, but the decrementing of those super aging to like, here we are on life support. Ah, you get a hundred years. <laughs> that's, that's what's fascinating. I don't know. Maybe we interbred with a species that was, had crappy DNA and, I think <coughs> I'm so sorry. Um, totally agree. I think that there is, um, this is us in biological safe mode, you know, like crappy computing. I think that irrelevant to what we bred with. I mean, we think of biology as a natural system yet we keep describing it in terms of computing. We keep realizing that there's switching and functionings like we describe machining. And as we learn more about, electromagnetic, uh, just the sciences across the board, as we start to recognize Tesla was the smart one. And there was, I mean, our, our theories of uh, electricity, who, you know, Steinmetz, uh, I think Ken Wheeler's work reminding us about the earliest, most brilliant, uh, not just mathematicians, but the reason we have current, the reason that we, harness electricity, uh, we still have a very primitive perspective on it. And then I think scientists get zeroed in on one thing. And so they become, they can become very brilliant about something very zeroed in, but then there's this lack of broad picture ability to see what you've seen. Um, in the paleo world, the joke used to be eventually we're going to have a left hand doctor and a right hand doctor. And they're going to think that their jobs aren't related. And, <laughs> And I think that's kind of the direction we're going with a lot of this is that we have this, um, it's a belief more than a science that aging is in quotes natural. Uh, yet it's a fact to academics that, well, you know, they sure knew how to build some things in the past, but, oh, they were talking about moons or months. There's, there's no Kings list. There's no King that lived 36,000 years. Uh, no, no, uh, Oh, it's just a metaphor. It's just a story. You know, Noah didn't live 400 something years. You know, Methuselah didn't live a thousand, you know, none of that's true. And yet the indicators uh, for a lot of other, um, again, a lot of these other stories, they take very seriously because when they went looking in early paleoanthropology and history, archeology, span they found uh, Moses's Egypt. They found 
uh, tells in Israel. And before you knew it, uh, these early archaeologists were using the Bible as a map, and yet we they don't give credence to the Sanskrit, uh, you know, the Hin- Hindu work. It's all considered laughable in the West. I, not not to everyone, but it it really needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be given the utmost uh, scrutiny and respect because I think that if you tie all, any of it and all of it together, and if you even respect uh, indigenous and or if you want to call them, you know, the dynastic Egyptians, I, I think they know how to count years. They're pretty good at doing a lot of stuff. And if they said they had a king's list, that's 36 stop. I think we need to take it seriously. You know, Sumer has a story. That was crazy. Did we just get mute? What, what, what just happened? I lost you for a minute. It's kind of, that was really weird because all of a sudden my dog started barking and then I lost you. Uh, yeah. Right. It must be some kind of satellite thing. That, so here we are again, going down the same like mind bending rabbit hole. And I think that, <laughs> you know, it's, I do like to keep track of how we get interfered with. It, it does. It is interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it happens to me quite often when certain things come up. You know, it also happened when I was talking to um, uh, Reverend Michael Carter from Ancient Aliens. And oh, yeah? We, we, and we, as soon as we started talking about, like, the government, we got disconnected. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's like, you know, we, we, don't, we don't eliminate people now. We give them very particular digital hints. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stop talking. Stop talking. Stop talking. Mute. <laughs> Disconnect. Crappy audio. Um, I know there's another disclosure coming. I just, you know, from the minute we started talking about this and, and doing this work, it, it, it's pretty obvious that we've missed a chapter of human history. We are not the best we've ever been right now. We don't just have random superhuman abilities. We are 100% not functioning at our finest. We are in like an <laughs> eternal hungover mode. Yeah. <laughs> Feels that way. <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah. So as far as the trip goes, lots of photos again, lots of discerning work to just go over those photos. Cause again, they're in 6k, uh, the Nikon shoots in 4k. Um, the, uh, other, uh, video and audio equipment, um, uh, Rex had Geiger counters, um, you know, electromagnetic field detectors. He had, uh, there was a, just a tremendous amount of equipment w- with us. And because of the, just to tie it back here, the, uh, because of what we found out about, not just the Anasazi, which is a great mystery, but that there are rock cut ruins that the Navajo guides that are in tuba are aware of. We are, able to go back now meet with them and go to new areas of the canyon and new areas really the mystery isn't just about the grand canyon the mystery is about who were we who else was here and it's not aliens it really is ancient human societies that weren't just tribal or like you said the blurred lines are these 
survivor cultures that were not included in any advanced recovery. They, they weren't within the gated cities or uh, within the, uh, uh, I guess, if we want to call them Atlantean community, they, but they were nearby. So they adapted and they used ruins that, you know, ultimately took on a more uh, local look than their advanced remnants. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to discern that, but we're, we're going to keep looking. And, you know, besides the, uh, uh, you know, the initial footage coming that it's pretty brilliant. I mean, nobody has this. And the reason I brought up the boating tours is because if you're on the boating tour and you had a telephoto lens, like the one we're talking about, it, you, you would be able to shoot, uh, you'd be able to shoot it. And I mean, the, the Canyon walls and uh, you can shoot it from above. You need to know where you're going. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's obviously anthropologists and paleoanthropologists and archaeologists doing work, but we don't have a really solid public record of that work, which I think is disappointing. And then um, we, we just have to get some people on record and we have to just start, I think, being a little more open, I think, outside of very closed academic halls as to what there is there. But for all those who casually want to look for the Kincaid Cave, uh, although inconclusive exactly where it's supposed to be we found no opening mm. you know what so. I, you know what i'm thinking i think like what we originally thought would be a scouting mission and possibly a month long thing i think we might be looking in more at months multiple months yeah. of work that's going to have to take place out there yeah yeah so it's going to be quite interesting it's, it's going to be a lot of work. Um, it's not one of the things we're going to put down. I think part of what's super fun and on, an, on a value add entertainment scale slash research for everyone listening is that you are going to be able to sit along for the ride. And there is a value absolutely in armchair research. And participating and listening in on our shows means that everyone has a hunch or a genetic memory. So everybody's got something. If they have a drive to be interested in a subject, whether they're downloading or connecting to the human consciousness in a different way, the reality is that we can resolve this as we look into it as a group. We just need the group and just keep bringing the info we got. And at the same time, it's going to take boots on the ground and scientific equipment to the best of what we think that is. And, and we're just going to have to keep going at it. Yeah. Yeah, and now I have a pretty good lead on where Atlantis also might be and how much it'll cost to find it. I know you mentioned that. Uh, it, that 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 is, um, you know, we have so many underwater kilometers of uh, coastline of where maybe the true more advanced societies were prior to the last few disasters. So well, it'd be uh, very... Apparent, apparently, Frank says that Atlantis was already found. First, it was found by a Russian sub that was looking for a submarine base in the Atlantic, though that they were looking for an Americans in the Atlantic with a submarine base, and he found these ruins. And they, apparently, the Russians went out there a couple times, took some pictures of it. Then the United States intelligence heard about it. They went out there and looked at it. And then after this was during the 70s, and I think he said 74. And uh, by the time anybody really got around to taking it seriously, Russia 
you know, Gorbachev and the whole Russian thing sort of collapsed. And then it's just decide where all the nukes are going to go. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And uh, he's talked to somebody, I guess, who was on that submarine and has the coordinates. So That's quite, it's quite exceptional that if you were able to get a hold of somebody off of that one sub, it was, did they just come forward or? I don't know. Fra- Sam, Fra- Fra- Frank, Frank has been, I mean, he's written 12 books on Atlantis. He, he's definitely. Into it. Uh, he, I, I don't say he's probably the foremost expert in the world on it. He's super fascinating. I'm super looking forward to talking to him. Yeah. I have to look at some of the stuff on the side. I'll get you that article for um, Mead, and then maybe we can get him on. Yeah. That'd be great. And then, uh, again, look for the posts. I mean, like I said, I'll get Gary the, for everyone listening, I will get Gary some of the, uh, some of our exclusive photography mm-hmm. for everything imaginable. Yeah. It'll I'll be on naughtyaliens.com. I'll put them on my site, which is everythingimaginable2020.com. Yeah. And there's more to come on this. I, I think just going over, I know that was really rude. We were, uh, you know, <laughs> you guys are listening as we're like, look at this photo and look at the ruins. And then yeah. Yeah, there, you guys there, just there will be me. video content eventually coming from us. <laughs> yeah. But in the meantime, um, thanks for having me on again. Um, We'll have to uh, make those other schedules after the show. So, a lot to do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think we've pretty much uh, filled an entire lifetime of stuff. <laughs> uh, we are. I think. I think it's only going to get funner. And I yeah. think, you know, with the help of the fans, that's the crazy part. It's like we're we're sharing this stuff with people who are going to support us to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so this is going to go from us uh, broadcasting where we are to us broadcasting in a van or portable studios. I think we're going to do more work on the road than we ever will sitting at home. Yeah, I think so, too. We're just getting started. Yeah. And that means you're going to have a lot more concerts and things to go to. Yeah. Yeah. I got to go see I Hate God tonight. I, I I bet that will be super fun. They're pretty cool, man. They're from... Uh... Louis, um, New Orleans sludge band. All right. I'm just excited to hear live music and lose a little bit more of my hearing. Oh, but dude, you're going to wear, you better wear everyone listening. Make them wear your protection. No. Mine, Gary. No, I already, my, if I still have any hearing left by the time I'm 80, then I did not live a complete life. Well, I'd like you to be able to hear like the dings off the sonar for Atlantis. So, all right, maybe I will. Uh, maybe I will wear air protection. Thank you. Now you got it. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to play the outro. Listen right. to this fine binaural sequence. Yes.
click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on film that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life.